Hi everyone, Sloan here. This is a very special episode with a very special guest. Jason Voss is the founder and CEO of Deception and Truth Analysis, a venture-backed technology company that's making the latest in lie detection technology available to the investment community. He's also a friend, mentor, and close collaborator of mine. We co-authored CFA Institute's Investment Idea Generation Guide in our prior roles and worked together on countless projects. We start this conversation by exploring why he's such a staunch defender of active management, and then move on to the various blind spots he's identified in most investment processes and how he suggests counteracting them. Then we move on to his current project, data, or as I mentioned before, deception and truth analysis, a clever acronym which Ashby is involved with as a founding advisor. We look at where the academic literature on lie detection in finance was when he started working on it five years ago, the distinction between deception and lying, and how active investment managers can use data in their day-to-day processes. Then, as always, we answer questions from listeners. If you'd like to ask a question in an upcoming episode, write to us at freemoneypod at gmail.com. For this week, we explore why retail investors have done such a good job buying the dip in crypto. When we first heard worries about the Chinese property market, i.e. a bazillion years ago, and which candy we would use to incite subversion should the need arise. If you stick around till the end, you'll get the real value proposition of this podcast, a gardening tip. I'll see you on the other side of the disclaimer. Take it away, Sharkbait. Ahoy, free money podcast listeners. I'm Sharkbait Buckley, the disclosure pirate, and I'm here to set ye straight about what's going on with this here show. Sloan Ortel works for Invest Vegan LLC, a New York registered investment advisor. Ashby Monk works for Stanford University, Adapar, Future Proof, Long Game, and various startups. All opinions expressed by either Sloan or Ashby are entirely their own, and do nay reflect the opinions of their crew or any company. Clients who invest vegan may maintain positions in securities and strategies discussed in this podcast. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where InvestVegan and its representatives are properly licensed or exempted and a client agreement has been executed. Arr. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. Here comes the money. Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. Um, it's yes! going to start the podcast kind of by surprise, a little bit earlier than Ashby thought. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I think we screwed it all up, but we're going to, we do it live here. We do it live. We do it live. And yeah, as I was just telling Ashby, I'm just back from my family reunion in Salt Lake City where I definitely picked up uh, something along the lines of a cold or COVID. Um, Fingers so- crossed we didn't break through. Because yep. you, you're you're pro vax, so I'm pro I know vax. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, me too. Exactly. Get the facts about the vax. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sorry to hear you're feeling down, but I have to say you look great. You look, thank you're, you. You're like bubbly. You know, well, I, I mean, it's there's nothing like hanging out. Like I have the most adorable Mormon family in mm. the history of the world. I mean, like mm. my my grandparents are like um, actual icons. Um, oh. The re- the reason we were out there was for a gala event to commemorate my uh, grandfather's 90th birthday and to raise a um, an endowment to fund arts programs. My gosh! Um, it was and like it, unbelievably cool. They've been they set up this thing called the Latter Day Saint Arts Center um, hmm. that is like 
really helping people reimagine what it means to be Mormon. Um, they wanted to create space for people like me who are not, you know, religiously Mormon uh, to be yeah. like affiliated with it in the same way so many people are culturally Jewish. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, I know a lot of Jewish people that are atheists, but are still Jewish. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and like, you know, you can't really opt out of the Mormonism. It's pretty inbred at this point. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, so you were uh, in Salt Lake over. I was over in Salt Lake. I got my uh, SLUT shirt. Um, oh, slut. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you didn't. I don't think you needed to spell. You know, I, yeah, no, I, I, I want to really, I want to make sure the joke translates for the folks in the cheap seats at home. <laughs> That's true. Uh, People who are, I'm not willing to sound out the letters you've just said to me. <laughs> S-L-U-T. Now, what could be a lot of Sloan's politics that would... <laughs> well, fantastic. Um, but yeah, it's like, I mean, it's like a big hug. I have like the most photogenic and lovely family in the world. And they're like, some of my cousins have new babies that I got to play oh. with and who probably got me sick. That's um, who got you sick. Yep. Babies yeah. are filthy. I've got two of them. Yep. Yeah. You know, what's up in what's up in Afterland? I have uh, an insight. You got news. I got well, I got news. That's next. But but off the top, I got some insights for you. Here's what I've I'm learned. Clutching my pearls. Here's what I've learned, everybody, everybody, because this is actually important in detail. <laughs> On sites are the new off sites. Hmm. I'll say it again. On sites are the new off sites. I keep getting invited to big fancy meetings at the office hmm. and it's almost like instead of doing an offsite with your team where you go and brainstorm you finally go to the freaking office for the first time in ages and you sit down for a big meeting i've done two in the past hmm. two weeks and it actually feels like the appropriate way to use the office yeah like you don't need to be in the office every day people i don't want to sit in the commute but like you know, going into the conference room, sitting with your folks once a month, once every two months for a big strategy sesh, that yeah. feels right. And so I'm calling it. I think people like the new post-COVID way of doing off-sites will be on-sites. You'll finally I, go to the office. I love that idea. So you'd have like firms setting up like their own little tree houses where they can get people together and like, you know, kind of have totally. Like, it'd be more about a hang than, than being like, than creating a place for people to like do, you know, like the kind of work where you should, you like stick your head to a spreadsheet and figure stuff out. Exactly. First off, have I told you that my fantasy with tree houses, like, I am, like <laughs> no. this is strange that you would just call that out. Um, I really want a tree house. I love <laughs> the idea about being up in trees. Uh, that's, but anyways, that's for another podcast. I think uh, probably not the free money. And, but then, yeah, I think it changes the type of um, office space you even need. Yeah. You know, like, why do you, maybe it makes the case for WeWork. I don't know what the hell it does, but mm. it definitely is going to change the way you use office space. And, um, you know, much more like sharing space, much more like party space, yep. things like that, rather than offices with doors, you know? Yeah. Well, I, what I love about that is it recognizes the nature of work as a social organism, you know, mm. um, like, I, I mean, the now, like so many people are starting jobs that they'll never meet their coworkers IRL unless those are unless like it's intentionally. So and, and that's great for diversity in a lot of cases, right? Like it, it, that means that, you know, the, the kinds of conversations that like long tenured employees have about strategy wind up being on Slack and not in person and therefore they're accessible to people and, you know, whatever, but. 
um you know i do love this uh this idea of like let's all get together and and like talk for a day oh my gosh me too i <laughs> it was a blast to actually sit there in a in an office with some people and like you know shoot the shit um like hey so uh you guys like you guys go, think the world's going crazy <laughs> <laughs> tons of that uh, i'm like hey how's what's crazy for you i think this is crazy it's like you forget about the little <laughs> chit chat you have with coworkers. Because of the Zoom the stakes are too high, you know. It's yeah. like we're on the Zoom now. This is serious. Whereas oh, yeah, when you just like pass people in the hallway, you're like, "Let me tell you about this crazy shit that's going on." You know, you don't you don't get that in the virtual world. Yeah, like I'll waste that guy's time all day. Yeah. Anyway, let me get to my news now. Mm -hmm. That was my insight. You're welcome. And uh, <laughs> sorry, the news is quite good. Mm. My first bit of news has to do with playing follow the leader in the investment world. Um, I saw the free money podcast retweeted this bit of news today. So I'm guessing you, know, you, you might be if, familiar with it. Yeah. If you go ahead and follow uh, at free money for 2069 on Twitter, you can actually get ahead of the news cycle. Holy um, shit. I forgot we were free money for 2069. That is fantastic. How did we get that? We have to pay for that or um, not? Yeah. That yeah. It's, Oh, well, you know, like Dick and, you know, and uh, what's, what's his face? Jack, the CEO of Twitter, and I go way back. I mean, so, you know. Sweet. <laughs> Sweet. Um, free money for 2069. Uh, okay. So follow the leader. These organizations that we study in the world of pensions and sovereign funds, et cetera, they struggle to innovate. They look to each other and they just follow each other around. Um, and in some ways, I find that incredibly frustrating. In other ways, it is actually pretty interesting to see when one organization finally gets off their ass and does something great, all of a sudden, all the others start to follow. And so when the University of California divested from fossil fuel, people were like, huh? And then when Harvard did it, people were like, oh, and now this week we've got BU and MacArthur that have announced they're going to divest from fossil fuel. And I think, you know, that dike in the Netherlands is leaking now. And we are about to see a flood of these organizations decide that they're going to divest out of fossil fuels. And those are the moments when you're like, shit, maybe I don't want to teach these organizations to be different, <laughs> you know, where like yeah. we could take advantage of their dysfunction. Um, in the herding and the follow the leader mentality, because pretty exciting to see these these organizations taking that step. Well, and like tactically, now is a pretty good time to do it if you're going to do it. I mean, like the because you know you've got this nice bump in you know those commodity prices. You know, I guess the um, you know the, the lexicon is to call it a dead cat bounce, which you know is not the most vegan yes. thing. But like you know, if you do believe over a long enough time scale that those things are going away, and you see prices behaving. Um, and you have perhaps a multi-year process of unwinding some of your positions in privates and whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, like no time like the present to get off the horse, you know, or to get exactly. on the horse. Let's get, or, maybe we can do one more analogy. A horse, a cat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. I mean, I'm a little, I'm a little under the weather. I'll give so you the I, end of the show. I'll my... give you the end of the show to get one more animal <laughs> reference in here. Um, <laughs> speaking of carbon. Not animals. Speaking of carbon, Norway's behemoth, the um, government pension fund global. It doesn't manage a pension fund, just in case you're wondering. It used to be called the petroleum fund, but it has $1.6 trillion of capital in it. And it is going 
on the path, hasn't come out and said it itself yet, I don't think, um, to net neutrality. But even more interesting, it owns about 1% of every company on earth. Yeah. Um, and it is going to start pushing companies to define their path to net neutral. And so when you think about this, one of the world's biggest shareholders is put the put the word out that they need plans from every yep. company they hold, which is every company. Um, the, every company they hold needs to show them a credible plan to net neutrality. Very powerful. That's a huge deal. I mean, th these these things are getting raised at AGMs now um, by advocacy groups. Like there's one called As You Sow that has done hmm. like, you know, probably 300. I feel like starting an active asset manager makes this a better podcast because now I have a lot more scuttlebutt about what yeah, you know a lot, <laughs> you know a lot more. Um, but like, but yeah, like there's, so this, this group, as you so has been trying to do that on their own forever. Um, and they're, they routinely get like 6% of, of the vote in shareholder resolutions. Wow. I think they had like three that passed or eight that passed. So 6% I should not be impressed by. Is that what you're six, saying? Yeah, That's a yeah, bad thing. 6% six, six of shareholders voting in favor of something is basically... Uh, you lost. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. This isn't like the Nader crowd being like, dude, you got 4%. That's not Whoa. bad. We're going to put the Libertarian Party on the map. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was green. You, yeah, well, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Next bit of news mm. coming to you from the great city of St. Louis, Washington University's endowment did something that I didn't think was possible. It basically, if I round the numbers correctly, um, doubled last year. Yep. You know, I'm yep. going to do some rounding. I'll admit that. <laughs> That's a slight round. Okay. <laughs> You know, and I'm rounding one down that I know I'm supposed to round up, and then I'm rounding the other one up that I know I'm supposed to round down, but I'm defining my own rules on free money. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I basically think it went from eight to 16 billion in one year. And I uh, am just kind of blown away that you can take that much money, which was already a big amount, yep. eight billion, and turn it into almost 16 in a single year. Yep. I think we should well, all be afraid. But, I think we should all be afraid by that. Well, also, I think we should be a little bit delighted. I mean, you know, one of the things I know you love, permanent capital vehicles played a role in, role in that. Um, Ooh, you know, one of uh, Wash U is the biggest investor in uh, Brent B. Shore's permanent capital vehicle. Right. Um, the, you know, which is like, I mean, I remember when he started making noise about it on Twitter, I was like, this man is insane. Uh, you know, I think he started in 2012 or something like that. Um, you know, and then our friend Ted Seides got, got on board not too long ago. Um, but I don't know, I don't know how that coincides with the Wash U thing, but like, um, well, they probably yeah, contributed to the performance must have contributed. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, and it's not by, um, it's not by being like, uh, you know, too super conformist that they did that. It's by, it's by taking some risk. Oh, you got to differentiate. Yep. Yep. You got to differentiate. <laughs> you just got to differentiate. Spe Speaking of, of differentiation, differentiation yep, what are we, we talking about? The, we have probably the most differentiated guy on earth in the waiting room right now. Uh, oh, perfect. The this boss the, of reason. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be mind-blowing to yeah, many of our listeners. My my former colleague, your current colleague, the boss of reason, Jason oh! Paulus. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe I've never done that before. I can't, like, I... Like I came up with that uh, in the while well, I was you know getting ready for this to start. Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. Hi, Jason. 
it's super exciting to be here, honestly, because not only I've watched a couple of episodes, but then also to hear the level of excitement in Sloane's voice as she describes the podcast, like in what you guys are up to, that I'm a guest is super cool. Aw. Yeah, we get really excited about the things that we do. Um, <laughs> so there's that part of it. But Jason, it's awesome to have you here. We're going to get into all the wild stuff that you do um, as chief executive officer of data, which we will define in a moment. We're not yeah. going to define the, it yet. The literal president of data here. Pres- yeah. <laughs> like, if you're a listener, <laughs> no okay. CEO of data. Like that's not it. And we are not lying when we say that. And Jason <laughs> will be able to assess that in a moment. You'll see why. But Jason, before we get into deception and truth analysis, yes, we, you were a fund manager. You've been, you've been writing at CFA. Like you've been around for a long time. And I didn't realize until part of this, this show notes as we were kind of preparing for you to come on that you were such a big defender of active management. <laughs> huge, defender, huge defender of active management, but which not, is fun. But not broadly. I'm a defender okay. under certain conditions. All right. So let's under let's dig in. And because we talk a lot about how, you know, the world of private equity is one in which 78% of GPs are top quartile. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody <laughs> is perpetrating like they're adding tons of value. But I want to hear from you. When does active management work? And why are you such a staunch defender of it in those circumstances? Well, I actually like how you framed the question with the, what are the criteria? Because that's exactly the conditions that I put on it. Um, I'm going to, Ashby, Sloan, you both know me pretty well, but for the audience's sake, I like to think of things in terms of continuums and especially opposites. So on one side, we've got qualitative, then we've got quantitative, trying to get in frame here. Um, So let's start qualitative, right? All good arguments and logic theory says you start with assumptions first. So the first and the qualitative one we'll just get out of the way is I'm a believer in active management because I'm a believer in human beings and human potential and human consciousness to solve crazy problems. In fact, passive investing, index investing is a human invention. So that's the first thing. But then logically, what are the criteria? Um, Actually, you know what? I'm going to share a metaphor. So I was a speaker at an event called the Fund Forum in Boston, I don't know, six, seven years ago. It was on the stage. I'd written an article talking about the benchmark tail wagging the portfolio management dog that Morningstar picked up. And the organizer of this conference, unbeknownst to me, as well as my guest on stage, which was the Morningstar analyst, who actually liked my post but had written a rebuttal for Morningstar, was on stage and the organizer had set it up as a debate. And both the Morningstar guy and I thought that that was pretty tacky to sort of throw us to wolves, but we were both prepared, whatever. So anyway, in the Q&A, though, I I was asked the following question. um, Are you a believer in active and why? And I said, well, I'm a believer in active because I think almost everybody is looking for their keys under the the uh, nightlight or the streetlight, not because that's where the keys have been lost, but but that's because everybody said that's where they should be found. Right. So Mm -hmm. what does that mean and how does that relate to the criteria? Well, first of all, I was an active manager. I had success. Uh, I beat the S&P 500 by benchmark by 49.1% in my career as a perennial lipper number one for multiple periods. I still don't see from my catbird seat of being a consultant firms doing what I used to do. So I know that it's possible. I know those techniques work because when I have worked with firms that are successful as a consultant, because until 
the 1st of September, I was CEO of ActiveInvestmentManagementConsulting.com. The firms that I work with that are beating the benchmark, consistently beating the benchmark, are doing very similar things to what I was doing. So then that says, huh, maybe we can trust these criteria. Okay, so what are some of the criteria? Um, concentrated works well. Uh, conviction works well. Those things are somewhat the same. Assets under management less than $2 billion works well. Unconstrained works well. Is it perfect? No. But is it predictive of future outperformance? Yes. That was part comes from a study that we did for active and or I'm sorry, the return of the active manager, a co-authored book I did with Tom Howard. And we actually did research for the book to support um, our point of view because we hear mm. people say, yeah, I believe in active, but I don't know how to identify those managers. So I'm just going to sell these uh, index products because of it. Um, so mm. the, the short answer is I'm, I'm a believer because I know that people still aren't doing what I did as late as 2005, 16 years ago. And I can, I'm happy to talk about those criteria and talk about them publicly frequently. Um, but one final point, um, because I, I have to explain my metaphor with the looking for your keys under the light. And I'm going to use, uh, forgive me, I'm using another analogy. And it comes from returning to the we, yeah, Before you got on, we were we had like seven animal analogies. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. If you could throw an animal in there, that'd be oh, right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will, I will throw in a sprinter. How is that? Somebody who runs as fast as or faster than many animals. So... Usain Bolt, say Usain Bolt, unquestionably the greatest 102 meters, 200 meter sprinter of all time. Say you are someone trying to recruit a uh, great sprinter for your Olympic track team, right? Tough competition. We can liken it to investment management. Very tough to do. Is every sprinter Usain Bolt? No, no, they are not. And that isn't the standard. But imagine the following. Uh, I want Usain Bolt's retired. So I want a, uh, somebody who's exactly his same height. I wanted somebody the same weight. I want somebody who has the same body mass index, his body fat level. I want somebody who has the same fast twitch muscle responses in his legs. I want to hire his track coach, six. I want to hire, I may even get Nike to make the same custom shoes they made for Usain. And, and, I'll, and maybe I'll even get the same person from the same township to run this race. Here's that is a metaphor for how active management is done and the constraints put on them. You have to be Usain Bolt. And by definition, we've said the index is Usain Bolt. Here's the problem. We've lost sight of something. It's not about being Usain Bolt. It's about winning the goddamn race. Amen. And Preach. to me, that's yeah. why I'm a defender of active management. Is uh, Active management is constructed unconsciously a number of mechanisms designed to describe performance after the fact that have become navigational compass points before the fact. And most of the problems of why active underperforms, I would chalk up to, we will do anything to get the additional dollar of assets under management that our consultants and our asset owners request of us, including throw onto the bonfire our actual ability to deliver alpha. Hmm. The very fact that we call it active management, by the way, it's like it, it is a very conformist way of describing it because it's as it's a function of like putting it up against the passive management. And so you're act in the old days, we would just call it investing. Yeah. Yep. And, and then we had the passive and now you're active, but Oh, you're an active. So you're all together over there in active land. The, the difference for us is that like, I think the three of us would say 
the differentiation is where the value comes from. And, and so calling them active or calling them whatever, like the point is you need to be unconstrained and you need to be able to go and, and pursue the truth in different ways. Anyway, I, I love the way you're describing it. Yeah, I'll, I'll add one other thing on there. And I, I love analogies. Both of you know that by now. Um, creativity and alpha are essentially the same thing, right? Alpha is delivering results that nobody else is doing by doing things that nobody else is doing. And by the way, creativity has the same definition. One of the things that I used to do was I wanted as many options on the table as possible to unleash my creativity. How creative is it when you are a mid-cap core manager and if you've done your job well and your assets appreciate, you may have zero turnover, but eventually you're going to drift up into large cap value. You're going to have a consultant call you up and say, you know what, you've got style drift. You know, you guys need to manage this or we're going to fire you. Oh, and by the way, that's 20% of your AUM that's going to go out the door. And so now we're going to have to lay off the 200 uh, customer service you know, representatives that we've got and part of the compliance department and the real world consequences to style drift that have nothing to do with seeking performance. So to me, that's, that's why I'm a believer in active. Now, if I were starting a firm today, I would not want to scale it. I would start with a different business model. I think all of these things are rooted in the business model of the business is management fee, a percentage of the assets under management. If you had it performance based, Nobody would make the decisions to scale up their assets because every PM who's ever managed money actively at the bar, they will all say, well, that's a pain in the butt. It's really hard to do it. And your 303rd favorite security is not likely to deliver the same alpha as your top 10. And the data shows that. Mm. And the only well, reason so I buy that 303rd position in my portfolio, you know, be less, less condescending. My 103rd largest position. The only reason I do this, I have to soak up assets and cash that's been sent to me because the way I make money is a bigger pile of cash as opposed to uh, actually delivering performance. Mm. I mean, well, you know, that's that gets right to the next question. I mean, like, you know, I, I think that, you know, investors in general, if you go to them and you're like, hey, you guys have and you've kind of done this, like you've taken your like 95 theses and like, you know, pinned them to the front door of various, you know, uh, investment industry um, cathedrals and, you know, and sort of said, hey, you know, hey, like, look, I mean, this is the this is the metaphor show, guys. Everyone loves it. Uh, but, you know, I mean, that's one of the big, big, big blind spots right there is optimizing for fee income. Um, you know, I wonder, like. Are there any other unifying characteristics that you would kind of point to when you think about, you know, things that the investment profession is just not set up to deal with well? Well, I mean, that's a huge one, right? So if that were changed and were performance driven, you would see an immediate loss of AUM in the quote unquote active categories because people who have been closet indexers or just barely failers for, you know, 10 years would leave the business. And what they would do is they would consolidate with other managers, scale, and Sloan, you and I wrote about this investment idea generation guide, or I'm sorry, we, we did work for Future State Investment Profession, my apologies, for CFA Institute, but we use scenario planning thinking to do this. What does the world look like, fast forward seven to 10 years in the investment business, and we said there'd be massive consolidation. What would be left are active managers who actually can do what they do. The consolidators will cut their fees lower, 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 lower. And essentially they're going to look for ways to compete. 
the prediction and future state of the investment profession that I argued, and it was really hard to get in, uh, it was kind of an over my dead body if this doesn't get in. I said that we would see uh, fund management offered as a lost leader. And mm. like 24 months later, Fidelity came out and offered zero fee yeah. investment management. And I said what they will try and do is add on higher value add services and because of computing, because of AI, because of big data scraping, all that stuff, you can offer a high touch private wealth client to a smaller AUM client than you were before. My prediction is we're gonna see lots of consolidation and the small and medium sized clients are gonna get better service than they ever have been before. And I'm not talking about some of the, the robos. Um, that's a whole nother subject, but anyway, um, and I, I think what you're going to have left is an active category that has different business models. They're going to say, you know what, we can't compete here. Interesting stat I'll throw out because this is a, this is such a fun topic and a passionate one for me. Um, you would think that the highest fee charging managers, or I'm sorry, you would think the best performing managers, the most consistently good performing managers would have low fees. It's actually the opposite. They charge the highest fees because they recognize the value of research. That was research that we did for Return of the Active Manager that we published in the book, and it's on, I think, SSRN, if I'm not mistaken. And we thought that was quite interesting. Somebody else did a follow-up piece of research, and they confirmed the same thing. The best performing managers have the highest fees, and that runs completely contrary to what people believe, but it, again, shows charge for performance, and that that's a more correct yeah. business model. It, that also kind of underpins, like, you know, what, you know, a view of what investing is, right? Like, you know, the, those guys are charging higher fees because they have process that's outside of the, the, the traditional, you know, way of doing things that, that creates results that are outside of the traditional way of doing things. And that allows them to justify, you know, this sort of thing. I think Steve Cohen famously charged like four and 40 for a while, or Rentec maybe charges four and 40 or something like that. Um, that's good. May I say one last thing? I know we got a lot to cover. And absolutely not. No. Yeah, Ashley is a is a in full disclosure founding advisor of data wants me to talk data. All this is yeah. history. <laughs> so so the, the other thing I'll say uh, about active is it's not easy, but it's right. even harder still if you agree to all of these unnecessary own goals and. So going back to the fun forum thing in Boston, I gave the the analogy, you know, with the looking for your keys under the light. And a guy, the guy's follow up question to me was the following. He said, well, how do you compete when uh, everybody in the universe now looks at, you know, the large cap stocks in the United States? How do you have add value? And I said, I hope that every single one of my competitors thinks that's the problem to solve. <laughs> Yep. The problem to solve totally. is to find return wherever it exists. And by the way, that is what the fund management industry was prior to Fama and French saying, identifying two unique factors, the small cap effect and the value effect, which then literally, and I, for return of the active manager, I traced the history of it. Two months after Fama and French in Chicago, at their, their they had some event, which they still host occasionally. Uh, where they talk about, you know, anomalies within the efficient market hypothesis. And they, anyway, they revealed these two to great acclaim in 1992. Two months later, Morningstar, also in Chicago, I'm guessing they were in attendance. I've tried to confirm it, released the style box with guess what? And essentially this was meant to describe the style box was how performance is delivered by managers because the progenitors 
of the efficient market hypothesis acknowledged you can add value and these are the two ways how. And we're stuck now with the style box and it is illegitimate on so many reasons. It's such a passionate talk. last thing. I said, this is the third time I said last thing. Both axes, proof that it's illegitimate, both axes have price of the securities that they measure on both axes. So what that means is both of them are super price sensitive. Don't you want yeah. independent measures of the same, of different phenomena? Wouldn't that alone tell you that it's illegitimate? Just, just logically. Yeah. And if create if creativity is alpha, you've now been stuck in a box. Like, <laughs> where's the creativity? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I will I will, I will smack my gob. I learned today that gobsmack literally means to like cover your mouth, right? So huh. gobsmack. Well, no, hey, that's, I mean, it, you know, Thank I guess you. I have Thank a, you. a related question before we get to data, which is, have you ever had a lukewarm opinion, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> I did earlier today. I was, I, I, I'm winding up my consulting career and I was talking to a consultant and they asked me how, how to discuss a difficult subject. Guess what? With their consulting community. And I said, I don't know. I said, I said, I'm 50, 50 either way. I said, that's your judgment. So right. yes, I do. I have lukewarm opinions, but I'm privileged because people, I guess, either like what, that I'm loud or whatever they, it is they like about me that I'm invited into forums where I get to talk about the things I do have strong opinions about. Yeah. Well, and like, I mean, so this is, you know, what we've been leading up to. Let's talk about data. I mean, like, I, you know, I am old enough to remember, I've known you for long enough to uh, remember you like selling, doing some lie detection research internally at CFA Institute as like a thing that was worth your time. Um, but can you maybe characterize like what the heck people thought about it? What was published when you got to it? And what's changed in the last five years in terms of like, you know, professional practical understanding of this stuff? And define data so that we can find- Oh data. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay, so data, Ashby and Sloan are referring to deception and truth analysis, D-A-T-A, -A, uh, my new company, and I'm the full-time CEO of it as of 1st of September, though I'm winding down previous commitments. Uh, and it, it's a company where we use computers, specifically natural language processing, to quickly and rapidly assess the level of deceptiveness or truthfulness within a document. We can zero in, let's say like, you know, like four pages, uh, within a document of where the deception is in the language that triggered triggered our algos. Um, so anyway, going back to CFA Institute, yeah, that, it was actually Sloan when I chose to exit retirement. I don't know to what degree this has really sort of been widely discussed in a public forum before, and I don't even know that you know it, Sloan. But I chose to exit retirement. I was a happy, you know, uh, pickup football and basketball uh, player and published an investment blog mostly to deflect. Uh, relatives and friends asking me investment questions. Like if I put on a blog, I can just say, hey, read the blog. Um, and to, to preserve, you know, my pickup football games and what have you. Um, so anyway, um, during the financial crisis though, uh, Dawn, my wife and I were watching television and there was a perp walk and they were walking out some finance executive uh, to, to, you know, they were arrested. And I said, where are all the good people in finance? I said, I, you know, I've been in finance at that point 20-ish years or however many years it had been. They said there are good people in finance. In fact, most of them are Renaissance human beings that are curious, broadly interested in the world, trying to do things right, trying to change things, etc. And she goes, <coughs> <coughs> and I was like, are, are you talking to me? And she's like, <coughs> and I was like, oh yeah, point taken. Yeah, I, I, I guess I'm one of the supposedly good people in finance and I'm 
just yelling at this TV doing nothing. And so I was like, okay, well, where can I have influence and where can I have platform without necessarily being a fund manager again, which I wasn't interested in. So I was looking around for jobs. I was thinking about writing a book. I did write a book. Um, and I saw, I went to the CFA Institute jobs board and CFA Institute was advertising for the role of content director, which, you know, uh, both of you, I think that I, I held that role. That's where I'm at Sloan as content director, CFA Institute. And what appealed to me about that role was something to the effect of, um, your job is to make members wiser or smarter, uh, by identifying compelling investment ideas or speakers that are new and cutting edge and, you know, feature them through our, you know, distribution network. As well as if there's subjects you think should be being talked about but aren't, you you are charged with developing that. And the original job description had something like that. I was like, that is what I'm looking to do. And I've, you know, call, Ashby knows this about me better than you do, Sloan. Uh, I I like the Jedi Knights. I always kind of saw CFA Institute's the yep. Jedi Knights. I mean, yeah, you know, before you start working there. Yeah, exactly. And then I kind of thought they were the Catholic Church, but that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> You know, they're similar, right? Right? A corrupt I think Jedi. Anakin Skywalker had the same reaction. Touche. 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 So anyway, I joined CFA Institute. Literally day two uh, of me joining, I sent an email to Rob Gowan, who was uh, at one point both of our supervisors, uh, someone to mine. And I said, uh, lie detection, I think, is a, a skill. I said, we are super dependent upon the statements issuing forth from the mouths of management of businesses, and we have no skill set on how to do this. At the very least, we should develop, we should work with people on how do you interview people or something. And I was interested in a whole suite of interview techniques. And literally, like, Four weeks later, I started working with Dr. Maria Hartwig, one of the few deception scientists in the world. They're not a lot. And we we sat down and we outlined, like, if we want to change the world through lie detection, what do we have to do? And over lunch at Landmark at uh, Columbus Circle and Central Park South, uh, the restaurant, we, on a napkin, outlined what we wanted to do. And so it's a subject I've always been interested in from my days as a fund manager, and then in the last couple of years, in my being a deception scientist and a published deception scientist, I knew that there you could use computing to, to solve this problem. And uh, so a couple of years ago, I had a venture capital consulting client say, hey, it, we're getting burned by our hires. We keep hiring people who have fibbed on their in their recruiting process. Can you help me? And so that's how data started, was I developed something based on reading the scientific literature and applying my own, I don't know how to characterize myself. Here's a lukewarm opinion. Um, I would call myself uh, mildly quanty, you know? And so I applied what I know from how to solve problems in investing to what the academics are doing and sort of developed data. And it's evolved over time, but like I did it fairly quickly. Like in a couple of weekends, I had an algorithm ready that actually helped them solve their problem. So that's the, wow. the long, long story there. What so just for the like the benefit of everybody out there that's wondering what the heck these algorithms are tracking like what what is the difference between deception and lying and what like what is the algorithm doing that's better than others and how much better is it just give us some more context there yeah so so thank you for asking um, so we're, technically we're looking at what are called psycholinguistic cues which are essentially behaviors of an individual revealed through their language use. So as an example, uh, 
when asked to recall a memory, uh, truth tellers reference an actual memory, and usually it's a memory of them moving through time and space. And so they use uh, motion verbs and they use time-oriented verbs, like before, after, since, you know, those kinds of things later. Uh, liars manufacture it and they're abstracting and they don't use those kinds of details. So that that's a, a difference, you know, between liars and truth tellers. And at data, we're looking at more than 30 of those psycholinguistic cues, all of which have been uh, identified as statistically significant. Um, the difference between liars and deceivers or lies and deception is something actually that the academics uh, obsess over and they've been at great lengths to define what technically is a lie. The difference between deception and lie is sort of uh, intent and damage done. So, for example, uh, if if your spouse or significant other says, do I look good in this outfit for the evening? And yes. You say yes, but you really mean no. The academics would say that's really more about deception than a lie. And the reason why is it benefits both parties. That, I see. That, that lie actually benefits your, your supposedly sensitive spouse, though they didn't get a vote, uh, really, and it protects you as well, um, whereas a lie benefits only one party. So that's one of the technical ways that they've tried to draw the line and say, this is bad, this is semi-bad, but not entirely bad, you know? Um, so that's 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 the academic way of describing it. Oh, oh you asked me about improvement. So um, uh, data, uh, there, there was a, a piece of research done in January of this year that looked at experts' ability to surface deception by reading texts of any kind, right? And they, and I, I don't remember the what, what the variety was in the sample. Like, was it scientific papers, essays? I, I don't remember. But they, human beings came in at exactly 50% accurate at surfacing deception. So here I've got a, I've got an old 50 pence or 50 shilling coin here on my desk. I like it because it has seven sides. Anyway, yeah. 50% is flipping that coin, right? It's not very good. Uh, data, we are 87.5% accurate for word samples of 850. Um, and we're able to assess much, much faster. We're 99.997% faster than people based on clock speed tests we've done. Uh, humans can read about 125 words a second. We can assess 70,400 words per second and with a much higher accuracy. So that, that's why this Some is of the thing. I feel like there was a story in a news outlet recently about a, a insurer that was claiming to use facial um, recognition software to spot fraudulent behavior. Um, is that a good technology? Like, are, how how should we think about all? Are you guys like that technology? Uh, no. <laughs> I say you guys. I mean, no. are we? Yeah, yeah, are we? yeah. <laughs> That's a T-ball of a question. That's almost like, Jason, you're a supportive active management kind of a question. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, no. We, are, we have already established that biased here. I'm, yeah, I mean, this, <laughs> is the, this is the unofficial title of this podcast is the Related Party Transaction. We are the Related all... Party Podcast. <laughs> we have a pirate at the top that talks about all the conflicts we have. So <laughs> We're laying the bear, right? Which is better than many do. Uh, let's, let's just be uh, full confession. Um, so... No, um, the academic literature, so, and it, it started in 1958, which is looking at facial tics, body language, vocal intonation, all that kind of jazz. And literally hundreds of these things have been examined starting in 1958. And the global average, as revealed in meta-analysis, which is a study of studies, is 54%. 
And in investment, uh, which is the research I did with Maria, uh, which was a result in a journal behavioral finance article, in finance, we're even worse. We're just 51.8% accurate uh, when we rely on these kinds of cues. And by the way, we're even worse than that because we're only 51.8% accurate because we have an over 60% truth bias. So because we guess truth way more than we should, we're really right on the truths, but we're really wrong on when somebody's deceiving. Um, so anyway, uh, no, the facial recognition that this insurance company is using, most likely the software is picking up on the facial cues. The problem is, is two, twofold. Either those cues are not uniquely associated with deception or lying, which is the bigger of the problems, or two, they are so subtle as to defy capturing. The former, the, the cues not being indicative of lying is the bigger one. That theory of using body language, there's multiple assumptions in the theory. One of them is that, that liars feel anxiety when they lie. And if we look for, or we create conditions under which you feel greater anxiety, we create a gap between the truth teller and the deceiver such that the deception is more noticeable. So I think they're probably, if they're picking up on anything accurately, they're picking up on anxiety but anxiety is not the same thing as deception. So for example, in a job interview or on a podcast, if somebody's examining right now, if I weren't as polished as I am and have done a lot of this, is it possible I would feel anxious? Yeah. Is that necessarily yeah. be deceiving? No. Yeah. Is it true in a job interview that I might be anxious? Yes. And by the way, some of these technologies that are being used are used in job interviews. Some organizations are using Zoom exclusively to see if job candidates are deceiving them. I couldn't be more disheartened, honestly. And then the last misuse of this is uh, police departments have wrongfully convicted people for a long time because they've read these cues and they've been trained on these cues. And they think that they are seeing deception uh, in these settings when what they're really reading is anxiety. And I'll tell you what, if you've ever been questioned by the police, when we lived in New York, Sloan, I know you live in New York. I don't know if the police have ever knocked on your door to ask you questions about it. They wouldn't question. dare. I'm sorry? They wouldn't dare. <laughs> Until they dare, Sloan. Until they dare. That way, I'm not sure why they wouldn't dare. I don't have. I don't see as a pro amendment two sort of a person. But anyway, they knocked on our door because there had been like a theft in our building, our apartment building. Like I got nervous. Like I'm like, yeah. whoa, why are they asking me? You know, I hadn't didn't have anything. Yeah. So anyway, I think with the police question, you have reason to be anxious. Well, and, and I, you know, one of the things that I love about, you know, how data works is distinct from how those other technologies work is like, you know, the cultural, you know, uh, underpinning of a habit is very difficult to kind of uh, program some aggregate level logic to encapsulate, right? So like Navajo uh, folks, for, for instance, really don't like to make eye contact when speaking. Um, you know, and like that, those, there are, you know, all sorts of differences like that. I mean, it, it seems a little bit like a modern phrenology, you know, like this, that's the, you know, the antiquated discredited science where people are using skull shape to denote, uh, criminality or whatever to kind of use just like a video and assume that the robot can like magically tell. I mean, I, I, I don't know for a fact, but I would imagine that a lot of white people seem to be telling the truth and a lot a lot of black people seem not to be telling the truth on those videos. Well, I'm going to steal phrenology. You have just uh, revealed to me a very 
good way of explaining why body language doesn't work in one fell swoop. That said, upstairs in our bathroom, my, and my mom just gave Dawn and me as a, an anniversary, or no, it was Dawn's birthday, a cat phrenology little statue, which we have sitting in our powder room. <laughs> oh, I love devil. that. That's amazing. <laughs> So anyway, not a believer, but 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 uh, I do have a phrenology cat statue in my my powder room. Yeah, like as a bit, as a bit. Um, the so I guess you know my last question, and there's a zillion things we could talk about, but like you know I I can imagine some ways that I could use uh, data to you know assess investment decisions, right? Like I've had, I mean, just this like I had a CEO say something in writing, and then it turned out that they don't really you know think the think. You know, in terms of their actions, the you know the, the statements don't really translate into action, and you know I could see it being useful for that. But how how do you imagine um, data being used, uh, you know, by investment managers, by the public at large, uh, and like who's your client? Yeah, great question. When we sat down to think of use cases, uh, we came up with like over forty just within investing. I think the biggest one is, and this ties both parts of our conversation together. Right, we're talking about a consolidation within the active investment management business, uh, and necessarily those who want to remain active are going to, unless they change their business model, they're going to try and cut their expense ratio, but still deliver world-class research results. So the first and primary use case is a um, focusing of your human-based intelligent resources onto the core problems. I think we would all agree as a pre-screen on our entire investment universe, we'd like to eliminate all companies that are attempting to deceive or especially to lie to us. And so I think that's probably the primary use case and a massive time saver. And it gives you confidence of, in a new way that your universe at least doesn't suffer from that. Right now, I can focus on other questions like competitive advantage. Do, you know, are they, is the strategy of the business expanding the moats? Is the management team the proper management team to execute the vision of the business? Uh, are they properly uh, investing in things to deliver ROIC, return on invested capital? Um, are, are they uh, a good ESG candidate? Are they a good corporate actor? You know, whatever you're, it is you're worrying about. Another one would be as a one-time sort of uh, cleanliness test of your existing universe, right? It, the average number of portfolio holdings, I think is 110 last I looked at that data. It's, it's some big number. And so I'm guessing there's something lurking in that portfolio you don't necessarily want in there. Mm. Um, and wouldn't you like to be able to uh, ask better questions of those CEOs or just outright sell? But it could also be used as an investment uh, idea generator for a hedge fund that does shorting, for example. If I'm a shorter, I want to know these about the level of deception before the rest of the market does. And now I can scour a much bigger universe and turn my uh, financial statement and analyst expert uh, to, to that problem based on a universe of probably very highly likely already committing fraud. Uh, and by the way, there's almost no competition for what we're doing. So you're going to be looking at a universe that maybe nobody else is. Anyway, I could go on and on. Um, you know, Ashby, I know you serve on a number of uh, boards and you advise pensions. How about just examining like the board book, right? I, yeah. I used to deliver the board book and those board books are, you know, like 800 pages sometimes. Uh, and I guarantee you no board member really reads every page. I bet they'd really like to ask thoughtful, intelligent questions, but they don't even know where to begin. And so they're forced to sample that book 
Yeah. Usually it's sent a week ahead of time to force a sample of the book. Wouldn't it be nice to actually ask great questions on the key ish and the key areas? Absolutely. What a great use case. Um, you know, because a lot of, a lot of times management of pension funds will inundate the board with so much information because then they can say, well, you had the data, you know, and by data, I mean, just like endless amounts of quantitative facts and, you know, mm. um, descriptive text around it. If we could use the data algorithms in order to pinpoint deceptive text in that 800 pages, yeah, it could really help boards spend time on the things that are important. Yeah. And like in a VC and like everybody goes to the private market or, or sorry, the public market space, which I did naturally because I used to certainly, you know, compete in public markets. But think of the value in public markets with bond indentures. Every bond issue is. Yeah. Um, and a company mm. may issue 40 bonds. Like you look at the cap table in the bond footnote of many publicly traded firms, there may be 60 pieces of debt that they have issued for some of the bigger firms. Good luck reading through those indentures to see what what bad news they buried in the indenture. Who knows, right? So, but now look at the private markets. Look at like VC, look at private equity. Ashby, you mentioned PE. Yeah. There is no public market mechanism. There is sometimes no auditing mechanism for looking at financial results. Um, and so what do you turn to in those situations? And by the way, right now, VCs, there's so much capital in these funds. Thank you very much. I'm grateful for that fact. Um, <laughs> but there's so much capital there. Do you really have time to underwrite deals with the same level of scrutiny that you did 10 years ago? Probably no. Not. And they have to move so much faster. I, I mean, because we're at the top of the market. And the entrepreneurs get to dictate terms in many cases. And so the VCs are making commitments in two days instead of two weeks. And uh, yeah, they by almost by definition, they have to cut corners. And so you expect four years from now that, you know, the next decades Theranos will have emerged in this time period. And we just don't know it. Yeah. I think that's that's a fair point. So I think it's slowly answered your question. I think there are lots of use cases, but we haven't talked about like auditing. Uh, we haven't talked about insurance adjusting. We haven't talked about content moderation. Ex, ex girlfriends, ex boyfriends? No, no, absolutely not. Okay, so good, good point. Yeah, one of the things I'm really sensitive about is the sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's all good. <laughs> Another t-ball question. Um, it could really be misused, right? Um, because. We're trying to use Sloan US target market. Target market is a person making a an important decision at scale. And by at scale, we're talking significant outcome relative to a business, right? So that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars. Like my average trade side use trade ticket used to be like 10 mil, right? And that's small. That's small. Some firms issue like hundred million dollar trade tickets. So you it's an assist in those situations where people are wearing their big person pants or skirts or whatever. Um, and that's what we aim to help. Um, we don't want this used in divorce cases. We don't want it used uh, for in job interview settings. That's a no-no because our whole effort is grounded in compassion. We're trying to make the world more truthful so that we're not burned by the malfeasance of something. And by the way, the research, the scientific research shows we all lie. And so because I know that, based on the sci me being a deception scientist, I have compassion, right? We're all mm. deceivers. We're all liars. Mm -hmm. we, we do it 1.8 times per day on average. So anyway. I am not lying when I say it was awesome having you on the Free Money Podcast. 
Yeah, absolutely <laughs> fabulous, Jason. Thank you so much. For We're going to have on. you back because we love having you here. But you know, once yeah, you're, you're live with data and you're selling subscriptions, we'll get you back on and we'll 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 kind of understand the exact use cases so we can put you yep. out there. Well, I would love. I'm going to hold up a mirror to both of you. Um, thank you both for fighting the good fight. Like the Free Money Podcast, you guys cover interesting subjects that I don't see covered elsewhere. Like usually, the investment podcast is what to invest in now, or let's let's sit at the fire, you know, do a fireside chat with somebody who's made money. Um, you guys <laughs> cover some of the nuts and bolts and some of the gritty bits of the business. Well done. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jason. All right. Yeah, and what you know, uh, Invest Vegan will, will be a, a very happy early subscriber whenever you get around to it. All right. And whenever we can afford it. Cool. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guy. guys and gal. Guy and gal. Bye. Bye. Thank you. I have a, a, a great Jason Voss story uh, that I will summarize this with, which I, like I think is the story of how he came to CFA Institute, pulled from our our boss. Uh, yeah. The, so, you know, content director at CFA Institute, right? CFA Institute is an incredibly conservative organization. Um, you know, somebody uh, described it as more establishment than Goldman Sachs. And I was just like, yeah, that's probably right. Um, and uh, so Jason shows up for his interview at CFA Institute in like, uh, I, I forget exactly what Rob said he was wearing, but, it, you know, he hadn't shaved. He, was, he wasn't wearing a tie. Uh, right. Or, or, maybe, or if he was wearing a tie, he was wearing one of his very unusual ties right um and his business card is a 24-sided um like starburst that's circular <laughs> and it says like jason apollovas on the front of it i still i have one of these like on my like mood board um and on the back it just says balance you know and of course everyone else who shows up uh to interview for this job is like you know very much out of the jp morgan mold uh <laughs> you know and Thank God they went with Jason. I know. Investment profession. I, I certainly am, uh, you know, completely changed as a result of. I have been too. Guy. I have to yeah. say, I, I've been working really close. To, I mean, you know, this is the Related Parties podcast. So, you know, like we've, been, I've been working with Jason for six, six or nine months now on, on this project. And I've learned so much. The dude is just next level on a lot of different fronts. So, and that just kind of trickled out in the podcast where he's like, he's got frameworks and analogies. For, for like hundreds of other things. So we got- <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah, I, the, I mean, the, the book we wrote together, the CFA Investment Idea Generation Guide, there's a link on his site and on, on Invest Vegan. Um, but it, I mean, it's like, I, I, I've been rereading it because it's now a part of my process. We, yeah. we went all over the place. I can't believe they let us publish that. <laughs> well, because he said he was good. It was over his dead body, right? <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, well, that, that, uh, was a, that was a slightly later one. That was one oh. already, you know, like kind of- broken a couple heads uh, uh, but he's building stuff which is hard he's building stuff which is hard brings us to our next segment Ooh. Uh, <laughs> yeah! building stuff is hard building uh, stuff is hard this is the uh, part of the show where we reflect on how hard it is to build stuff and well, you're about to go. Let me tell you that I was laughing to myself that if Jason is successful, he will take the whole fake it till you make it world of Silicon Valley oh my and God. make it harder. So Jason is making it harder to build stuff. Or maybe mm. maybe he's making it easier for those of us that think we're building real stuff because so. people will spot us and be like, 
that's not the fake stuff. That's the real stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think so. Like, I think, you know, there's like this culture of like fake metrics or vanity metrics that's right. that, you know, data seems aimed right squarely at, you know, where people will like show up and like kind of do statistical vomit and then be like, oh, yeah, therefore I'm a good investment. That's a good um, name for either a new startup or a band. Statistical vomit. Yes. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, subsidiary free money when we, when we yeah, really exactly. hit it big time. When we finally get our VC investment and, uh, you know, get SoftBank on the phone. Um, what's been hard this month? Um, well, I, uh, I actually had this amazing, uh, I, I took this amazing decision to not only uh, go off my antidepressant, which it turns out I'm allergic to. Oh. Um, but also deconstruct my office and rebuild it. Um, Were those two first, uh, decisions interlinked? I, you know, I don't think so. I, I wanted a bigger desk. Um, and okay. It was a lot nicer. <laughs> uh, but, um, but yeah, I would say like hypothetically, and I had no control over this because, uh, and fortunately it hasn't really played into performance or anything like that. But um, the, yeah, I mean, if it turns out you're allergic to your antidepressant, try to not figure that out in yeah. the first in the first month of launching your business yeah that's that's, that's my thing. i'm sorry to hear that how uh are have you been doing some investments with the money i gave you i haven't i haven't noted that uh, yeah yeah totally totally invested it yeah definitely invested so it. Yeah, invested no. uh yeah no honestly um you know one of the things that i've been you know when you start thinking about the invest vegan hypothesis what's tricky about it i think to a lot of people is they think okay so you're investing in protein which mm. is not the deal the deal is we're investing in stuff that doesn't do cruelty to other stuff. Ah, um, okay. You know, so the, like, it has to be, you know, not just on the net, but on the gross added to society in my criteria. Right. Um, and, yeah. you know, I, what I would say is like, I mean, our benchmark is the Russell 3000. We've done quite well compared to it, um, you know, in the, in the downturn at various points, we were, we had opened up five percentage points of outperformance on, on the Russell over my the first goodness. Of operations. Um, and, you know, obviously final numbers will come in later, but, um, you know, the, the big, the big takeaway so far has been that, you know, these things that don't do cruelty on a systematic level seem to have more durable businesses, right? Yeah. Um, resilient, you know, resilient. Yeah. It's the whole resilience theme that we keep talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, Perfect. what's been hard for you lately? Oh, I, I feel like, um, just being, uh, I'm building something new. Um, and, and both at Stanford, um, I'm building like a new research program. Mm. Um, and then also doing some in some of the, the land of startup building a, a little research function. And it's just also for me, it's, it's hard, but it's a reminder of how fun it is to like dig in and do the fundamental research. You know, it's what yep. got me here. And, um, and so building stuff is hard, but it's kind of worth it. Like I, I'm publishing, I, I'll, maybe I'll use this segment to brag, but like I'm publishing a couple of papers this month that like, I'm just super proud of. And it's been, it, they've been the private equity paper we put out yesterday was three years in coming. The portfolio is resilience paper we're putting out um, early next month in October. So this month, when you listen to it, it it's, uh, you know, 40 plus pages. It took years to do. I have a paper with Alistair Barker um, on how investors deal with technology disruption. We've been working on it for two and a half years. It'll be coming out before um, 2022. So 
these things are hard and I feel like it takes a long time to do them, but when they come out, you know, it's like you're kind of giving birth to something. So, and then sometimes you put them out and like nine, nine people see it and then they never hear of it again. Um, but sometimes, you know, they have an effect. So, yeah. I mean, that's, re that's really awesome. And like it, it, and it is like, I honestly, whenever my mood has been kind of unwavery, uh, like a little jittery or whatever lately, I've been, I've just gone back to my spreadsheet and that's really brought me kind of back up. Uh, it's yeah. always the, it's, it's the admin crap. It's the, you know, it's the back and forth, but the, the research is really just a joy. It is fun. Uh, and it's actually, you know. that's the link by the way, between academia and finance, like so true people who are, are really great investors, they spend their life doing research. It's just, they don't publish it. You know, they, they make use of it in an investment strategy. So yeah, they just sit in their skyscrapers and cackle about yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> Halloween episode coming up. Oops, sorry. Oh, no, that was great. It's time. It's time. Um, it's time for Dear Ashby. This is the segment where we beg you to review our podcast. If you've listened this long, you know how good it is. Um, you know, but and it's also the segment, uh, more importantly, where we answer questions from you. And it's very easy to send us questions. Um, freemoneypod at gmail.com, at freemoney for 2069 on Twitter. All of these things. All of these ways. You can just uh, also. You There's can many ways. Yeah, I mean, if you mail want to us a letter mm. to a PO box, which you can find on the website, maybe. I, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you can find an if you can find a mail, there's a PO box on the on the website. Mail it. Yeah, yeah. Send us some chocolates. Um, you know, and if you if you happen to be hanging out on the astral plane, just connect with us. Yeah, you, you know. Um, metaverse, come say hi. But the met oh god, not the metaverse. <laughs> sorry, uh, sorry. <laughs> 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 So the first question for this week is, I think this is a really interesting uh, behavioral question. I do too. Question. Um, I think my investors... answer will surprise you. Oh, really? Mm, mm. Ask it. Retail investors have readily bought the dip in crypto in a way that they struggle to do with stocks. Um, do you have any pet theories as to why this is? I actually think buying the dip is super easy. Like, mm, if, especially... That is a surprising answer. Yeah. Especially if you do no fundamental analysis. So the world of crypto is like almost by definition, a speculative thing. Yeah. You can't do fundamental. Yeah, there's no cash flows. Like what are you studying? You, you know, it's the same thing that people do around currencies, you know, except at least yeah. when people are modeling currencies, they're looking at underlying economies and central bank policies and things like that. Here, this is literally like price was high. Now price is low. Let's buy. And, yep. and so I find like, even in my own life, when I've been in a speculative mood, um, when markets drop, I'll be like, Ooh, let's put money in there, you know, like, but when it becomes individual stocks, which I think is this um, user's question, you get a lot, it gets a lot more complicated. You start to think to yourself, oh, is there something fundamental about this? You know, is it, did the. Like, I'm not doing research. It's like, you know, our guest who was like, I don't do research in stocks. I can't remember oh, her yeah. name. The iconic Liz. Yeah. Liz. Liz was like, research? Um, <laughs> yeah, I read the longest one, or, or I find the longest one, and then I don't read it, and I buy the stock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Liz's proxy was length of research, not actually doing the research. Yep. Um, so that's a little bit like this world, right? And, and so when I'm you know, playing around in the markets and like doing index funds, I see a big drop, I'll put, I'll rebalance, I'll get in there. But if you own 
you know, GE or something and the stock drops, you're definitely wondering, oh, is there something going on here? Like, yeah, what did I miss? What did I miss? Because I know I missed everything because I don't actually do any work, you know, whereas stuff like this, it's like there's nothing to miss, you know? Yeah. And so I think that's what's going on and why people seem to buy the dip on these um, crypto assets, because it's impossible to do fundamentals. And it's highly mm. likely that they're not missing anything that they didn't know before because there mm. was nothing there to begin with. But I'm That's a really compelling theory. Mm. Um, mm. You, you know, I, I, my, I, I guess my, my take on it was that, like, you know, because it comes as this, like, incredibly speculative asset. That's a very know, similar you, thought, though. That's, yeah, that's kind of where I'm going. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's true because like, if, you, if you have it identified as, like, a speculation at the outset, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. And like if then... you're, if fine, if you're buying Bitcoin, may, maybe you can start to make the case as a store of value. But if you're like how many or Ethereum or whatever, mm. like many of these other coins that are out there, people are still trying to figure out what to do with them. You know, like, yeah, it is by almost definition, like um, a speculation. Yeah. You're, I don't know. Yeah. I, like I said, there is no fundamental analysis that I know of yet. Like, have we seen the fundamental, like, toolkit? Is there an intelligent crypto investor book coming out with cigar you know, butts? F funny you should ask. Uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, like, there, there are some, like, pretty cool ways that you can, because, you know, you can think about, for instance, like in DeFi, right? Yeah. Like, there are all of these, like, decentralized finance protocols that purport to be about uh, facilitating the transformation of one crypto asset into another. Mm. Um, okay. you, usually taking a more mainstream crypto and uh, transmuting it into something that could be invested aggressively instead of a yield pool or something like that. Mm. And, and in that case, um, a lot of the fundamentals are explicitly observable because you can watch how many people use the protocol to transmit the, this, the, the vanilla crypto into the whatever and then you can see like okay protocol one is being used 25 times more frequently than protocol two um and is that in line with pricing or not yeah um, fascinating you know, but but like you know that's that's pretty but that's I mean, the that's beginning like, it is i mean but basically what you're doing there is you're valuing the new york stock exchange based on volume you know mm. like which is how you would do it uh you know but admittedly incomplete um yeah, you're, yeah not, a, you're not actually connecting into the underlying economy. You're you're still operating exactly. at the level of the abstract financial market. Exactly. You're still playing with abstractions. Um, the, the next question, mm. Um, mm. markets. I feel like I need to like have an. Have oh, like is our a, Boston part of the show? Markets. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, you know what? <laughs> markets have been swollen recently. I can't. I, 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 every time I try to do an accent, I'm Museum of Finance. <laughs> I live. Remember, I lived in Boston for two, uh, oh, two years. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And these are things I heard on the street, which are now part of my repertoire. The a Museum of Fine Arts, grabbing um, her little child and saying, "No, y'all knew what? No, you're not. No, you're not." In case I need to translate, and obviously, the Museum of Fine Arts. Best the Museum of Finance, definitely. No. Um, <laughs> um, so the markets have been suiting because of the worries associated with high debt levels in the Chinese property development sector have come home to roost. Mm. This fear is as old as time. Yes. I remember the first time 
that you heard somebody worry about Chinese property development debt. <laughs> it is as old as time. I feel like in my entire professional career, <laughs> this question went to the core of my being. Because when I saw the question, I was like, holy cow, you're right. Everybody has been talking about this for 20 years. Yep. Uh, this is going to take down the global This is going to definitely take down the Chinese economy, These, the, especially the state-owned banks. Um, which are holding the bag here, but then it's going to take down the global economy. Yep. yep. Uh, what's so funny is um, I can remember when Central Kujin, which is a, a state-owned entity, which was is like largely responsible, as best I can tell, just to bail out banks in China. Mm. Um, in 2005, it was in the business of bailing out banks. Um and then I think it was part of the state administration of foreign exchange. This was even before of the CIC came into being. When CIC took over, they moved Central Hujian under the China Investment Corporation because it owned so much of the state banks. It was like a holding company at that point because it had done so much bailing outing. Um, but in case you thought that was over, like in 2019, Huge End did a 14 billion bailout of Heng Feng Bank. And all of these bailouts go back down into the real, the real estate economy and like the overheating that's going on there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the fact that like the way they sterilize the currency, I think they're issuing local debt. It's all this stuff, right? That like powers forward the, the biggest real estate boom in the history of the universe. And I say universe because we don't know if there's aliens, but on Earth, at least. I mean, if, if there are aliens, I doubt that they are engaged in as aggressive a scale of property I development. That fast. Unless, unless they're, I mean, they, they would literally have to be a multi-planetary species. To beat uh, us. Yeah, because what the yeah, Chinese are yeah, number one. Yeah, to beat the Chinese at building property. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I've read The Expanse. I know about the uh, proto-molecule. You got to have the proto-molecule to beat the Chinese. <laughs> Somebody knows what I'm talking about out there. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I mean, Jeff Bezos' favorite TV show, by the way. Oh, is it? Yeah, he actually saved The Expanse from being canceled uh, and brought it onto Amazon. That's so uh, funny. It is a it's great like, series of books. It, yeah, I, I've only watched the show because, oh, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm a piece of trash. It's still a pretty good show. I've seen it too, uh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so we have a lot of Chinese questions, I guess. What's up? You know. What's up? Yeah. Yeah, we got uh, China on the mind. Hmm. Um, Hong Kong police. Holy shit, I forgot about this question. Hong Kong police have arrested <laughs> activists for trying to incite subversion by distributing M&M chocolates. If you were to use candy to incite subversion, is this the one you choose? And by the way, the person who sent this question included a link to the article, which is a, a good best practice in the same question. Yes, please do that going forward. Uh, <laughs> I love this. I have to tell you that I've had a sneaking suspicion for a long time, and this allows me to reveal it. Uh, I think the candy bar mounds was an, a, a psyop by the CIA. I think the candy bar mounds has created far more pain on the earth than pleasure. <laughs> How many children have reached into their Halloween candy bag and pulled out of mounds and been horrified? So if I was going to incite subversion, I would replace all candy bars with mounds candy bars. And you would see people so mad 
when they mm. realized this delicious candy bar you gave them was filled with some random gross coconut. Not even good coconut. Yep. Yep. I, I love this. So this implies heavily that the Chinese ad- activists are distributing M&Ms because they're shitty. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know what their logic is. I thought I was trying to incite, you know, a, a, yeah, disbelief in the government or something. I don't know what the... <laughs> I, I don't I mean, I don't know why they're doing it. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, I mean, so you're saying but, what is the capitalist thing that I would give people that would prove they love it so much? Mm, is that what I mean, I don't know. Is? It's not my question. Um, the, I, I, like, I guess, you know, I, I would kind of go, like, if I was trying to, you know, get everybody, you know, hooked on my, my, oh. like, my way of seeing the world, you know, like if we were to have like, yeah, I mean, portable alpha obviously is not available at sufficient scale to incite a revolution mm. because hundred gram bar. Yeah. hundred gram bar. Mm. Very delicious and capitalist. That's a, I mean, there you go. Yeah. yeah I mean, I would go with a Skittle too. I mean, like mm. I think tasting the rainbow, you know, especially if you haven't partaken before, I mean, that would be enough to change anybody's mind. Very good. Have you ever had Smarties from Canada that are like M&Ms, but they don't sell them in America? I don't think I have. Oh, for the Canadian listeners out there, um, <laughs> Smarties, no. which also exist in the UK, it's a chocolate candy that looks and feels like M&Ms. They never brought to America. But in all the other parts of the English-speaking world, they're like as popular as M&Ms. They're mm-hmm. everywhere. They're called Smarties. Look it up. People in America think Smarties are these little candy things. The chalk things. Yeah. No, no, no. Smarties yeah, yeah, everywhere yeah. else like, are like, like better oh, M&Ms. Oh, like Smarties, the, the worst candy in yeah. the entire world. So in America, maybe that's what happened. People are like, more Smarties? Hell no. Those mm-hmm. things are terrible. Yeah, the brand is poisoned. Yeah. No, look it up. These are chocolate-covered candies, mm. and they're better than M&M's. Sounds pretty you good. You heard it here first. Um, we, got, uh, we have one last segment, which is, of course, what everyone's everyone's, everyone's waiting around for. Yeah, I, I know. Mean, it's like, I know, you hear, I know you feel that applause every time you step out into your they're garden. Like, What's your garden tip of the week? Garden tip of the week. It's a big one. It's jujubee season. And I planted the jujube fruit tree in my backyard in the middle of COVID because I was like, what grows without water, basically? That was the logic. I was like, highly drought tolerant trees, please. Mm. And it's almost like I organized it because I think the jujube tree originally comes from China. So it's almost like this is a segment we planned, but we did well, not. What, I, I actually Googled it because I was like, is he making that up? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, the, and it, I see that it's, you know, uh, the Indian and the Chinese jujube. Yeah, so I think uh, I have the Chinese jujube. I think mm, I seem to recall. Mm. And they tell you on the internet, this is where we're getting into the tip part of the show, that this uh, tastes like apples. And so it encourages you when you read that to maybe pick it a little early because you see it uh, when you get an apple and it starts to get brown spots on it you're like "Mm, i don't want to eat that Mm, apple yeah jujubees you got to plow through until that entire jujubee is a dark brown and then you eat it and i have to say i've i was eating them way too early and i finally forgot about my tree for two weeks i went down there and i was like damn it everything's brown because I apparently I don't pay enough attention to this stuff, but I pulled them off and I was like, wow, it still feels great. It's not squishy or anything. I took a bite 
It is like an apple was combined with brown sugar. It is oh, that rules. one of the best fruits I think I've had in a very long time. And my wife informed me not 22 minutes ago when I was talking about this, that if you want to get a bag of jujubes at Whole Foods, it's over $8. Oh, wow. Yeah. Super wow. expensive fruit. Also, like, can I say, has one of the best Latin names of any plant that I've seen. Hit me with Sisyphus it. Mauritania. <laughs> Sisyphus. But, I mean, like, I, I, it doesn't get much better than that as far as I'm concerned. Huh, I wonder if it's from Mauritius. Interesting. Mm. Interesting. We have Mauritius, Mauritius, not just for Asia Pacific domiciled offshore funds anymore. No, for the GGP. <laughs> All right. Uh, that was well, a long that, show. That's the show. I got nothing. I have nothing left. I'm long. exhausted. Bye. Bye. We do love you. Let me get rain on them.